Hey, tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Welcome to the Tourpreneur Podcast. Travel industry veteran Shane Whaley will take you on a journey with fellow tourpreneurs, sharing their tips, ideas, insights, and success stories to inspire you to make your tour business the best it can be. And now, please welcome your host, Shane. Christian, welcome to Tourpreneur. It's your second time on the show. The first time we uh, had a quick discussion in Berlin about Magpie, which is a very exciting development in the industry. Today, I wanted to talk a little bit about your story in travel and your journey because you were somebody I remember from meeting you when I was at Get Your Guide. I knew you were a fellow Brit. I knew you were involved in hop-on, hop-off buses in San Francisco. I knew you supported a dodgy football team. But other than that, I didn't really know your story. I know there's a lot of other people who want to hear your story. Uh, So thanks for giving us some of your time today. Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to be here and talk about my wonderful football team, amongst other things. That's right. Uh, So maybe you could share with us, when did you realize you had a passion for traveling? And when did you first think about working in the travel industry? So I think think I've always loved traveling. We traveled quite a bit as kids, um, mainly around Europe, mainly camping trips with the family. Uh, I've always loved maps. I've always loved looking at places in the world and getting excited about things I wanted to visit in the future. Always wanted to visit Australia and USA. And I don't think I really made a decision to work in the travel industry until I first came to the States. My first job here was as a pedicab rider. So a giant tricycle on the streets of Fishman's Wharf in San Francisco. So that was really my first um, experience of actually working in the industry. How did you end up in San Francisco? So I was a student in, in Leeds University in the UK. And they offered us a program where we got a three-month work permit for the summer. And I applied for that. It's called a J-1 visa. And they actually gave us a book of jobs that we could apply for. This was pre-internet, showing my age. And it's, it's funny, I applied for jobs selling ice cream on the beach in Wildwood, New Jersey, which I thought would be the ideal job. And they wrote back a few weeks later and said, sorry, the position's been filled. I was devastated and I thought, hang on a second, if I'm going to go to America, let's go to real America, which for me was California. So I applied for this job to ride a pedicab in San Francisco and I arrived here expecting um, the boardwalk in Los Angeles and <laughs> Didn't we all? arrived here in, in San Francisco and that was it. Yeah, it's funny. I was the same thing when I arrived here, uh, which was in 2010, you know, expecting to be really warm and, uh, you know, we have warm days in San Francisco, but it wasn't, you know... I remember chips from TV, you know, that was California for me. Yeah, it's, it's not Santa Monica, yeah. So at Leeds, you studied economics. How would you say your university education has helped you in business? So, yeah, I studied economics and management at Leeds. That was a natural place. I think I was always going. I always enjoyed that field. 
I was back home last year. I go back for WTM each year and I went back to see my parents and my mum asked me to clear out the attic as she does every year. And one of the boxes was full of my old school books. And I always said to myself, I always said to people who asked that question, I don't think I really learned anything in college that I later applied. And it wasn't until that day and when you have to clear out your old school books, you sort of look through your notes. There, there weren't many notes, but I looked through the notes <laughs> and um, started looking at what I was studying 20-something years ago. It just occurred to me that, yeah, I actually studied that and I've applied that. And yeah. then I've HR, yeah, I've applied that. And all these things that you don't know you learned at university, yeah. but I've, I've been applying all along without realizing it. In hindsight, I can say, yeah, it was a good intro to business. If you could go back in time, knowing what you know now and in, in your business career, would you choose the same degree or would you pick something else? I would choose the same degree. Yeah. Yep. Excellent. I'm curious to know, how did you get from the bike, so being a bike tour guide, pedicabs, to launching City Sightseeing? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a long story. I did, I did six summers. I, I came back every summer right. uh, during college. I graduated college, still kept coming back to San Francisco. It was, I still say it's the best job I ever had. Yeah. It was uh, decent money. It was cash. I'm outside. I'm peddling tourists around. It was just great fun meeting lots of people. But eventually I had to get a grown-up job. And because I was already thought I was in the travel industry, I met a couple of guys and we, let, we thought, let's take this a step and buy a bus. So we went out one day and we put $3,000 in each and we bought a bus and started running city tours. So we sort of fell upon it, really. So that, that's interesting you say that because to, to people listening, that we went out and bought a bus and we built the business. I mean, there, there's a big step between, you know, if you're running a walking tour, there's not so many overheads. I can't imagine as many regulations. So how did you go about starting the business in terms of, you know, what you needed in terms of insurance and regulations to run a, a bus tour in San Francisco? Uh, first of all, were, were there any other bus tours at the time or...? Yeah, there were, there were three good-sized companies running bus tours. There was, right. there was a Grey Line and a couple of others in San Francisco running city tours. Running yeah. The three-hour city tour was the sort of standard. So, you know, thinking back, we, we didn't have a clue. We didn't have a clue what kind of bus to buy, what to ask for. We would, we would count the wheels and count the bus seats, and that's about all we knew to ask right. as far as buying a bus. <laughs> uh, I don't know much more today, honestly, about, about buses, but... Um, yeah, the regulations, you know, we, we worked it out. We got a city hall and find out what kind of license we need. Uh, it was a state license. And you just go through the paperwork and you get the correct insurance. And yeah, it was a learning experience, but yeah. it wasn't that complicated to get up and running. And if there were already three companies running bus tours in San Francisco, what was the gap in the market? What did you and your friends think you could do better than what was out there already? probably wasn't a gap when we started we didn't know enough to do research right. and we didn't understand the market we just, i just knew fisherman's wharf i knew it was packed full of tourists and there was a market for tours i suppose it came later when you start actually working out what your product is that you start to look for ways to differentiate and i think that's when we started growing and that's when the internet really started and that was our differentiator the other Companies were bus companies run by bus people yeah. that understood transmissions and engines and all that good stuff, which I had no interest in. And we built it on really the web, the web and distribution. Right. Talk us through then that first year. So you got your first 12 months under your belt. What did you learn in that, that first year or so? It's a while ago. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just thinking back now, it's just such a, a scramble to think how little... We knew, you know, it, it's, fun, it's funny when you, when you grow a business and, and you age, you, you always look back and think what you would have done better. 
which actually never ends. Today, I look back and I think, oh my God, this thing I was doing two years ago, what was I thinking? Why would I make that decision that was so amateur? My memories now, thinking back, it was just day-to-day hustling, doing whatever we had to do, coming up with our first brochure, coming up with our first website, just really trying to work out how to survive another month and another month and another month. We did too much. We didn't really plan a lot of things. We just fell into things. We started renting bikes and rollerblades and scooters and all kinds of things that we had no business doing. So yeah, it was all a bit of, bit of a hustle and a bit of a scramble, really. And how did the three existing companies, how did they react to the young whippersnappers coming along and starting their own bus tour? Yeah, I think they sort of discounted us for a while. Uh, they didn't understand the web, so they didn't see a threat. Right. They thought we were a little bit scrappy. Uh, I don't think we bothered them really too much for the first few years. But it was later, I think, when I started with City Sightseeing that things changed in the market. Never miss an episode of the show. Subscribe at torpreneur.com forward slash subscribe. So you sound very confident. Did you suffer with imposter syndrome at any time in those early days? Or were you like, no, this is it. This is what I want to do. And I think we can be successful. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had imposter syndrome. I know it's very common. I'm not very good at just sort of sitting around and looking at myself where I am today. I'm always looking at what's next and how can I grow and how can I improve. Occasionally, when it comes to making a big decision, sometimes you always think there's, there's somebody else you can ask. There's somebody else who knows the answer to this. And then sometimes you look at yourself and you're thinking, oh, actually, it's me. I need to decide how to do this right now. There is nobody else who knows the answer to this. I just need to decide. But I've never really sort of had this imposter syndrome. I know from, from other people, from good friends, that it's, it's very common. Yeah, with, with most of our guests, they, they all go through that, especially, you know, leading their first tours, etc. There's a lot of questions. Should I be doing this? Who do I think I am? But it sounds like you've bulletproofed your mindset that you were going to deliver a really good product for people visiting San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now you say that, I'm probably going to have to stop and think about it and I'll probably develop it overnight. But we'll, <laughs> let's hope let's not. Let's see how it goes. No, let's hope not. Did you have any mentors in that early age? So when you started, was there any that you went to that gave you some really solid advice? No, not specifically. You know, I moved, it was 8,000 miles away. So I I arrived here without really knowing anyone except a bunch of pedicab drivers. I've always read a lot. I've always gone to business books. So my mentors were probably from from books, Richard Branson's of the world and that kind of things. But individuals, no, not, not really. Yeah. So talk us through the expansion. How did you go from one bus to multiple yeah, so that was very organic at the start. We bought the, the first bus was 29 passengers. I do remember specifically, we went to look at it just south of San Francisco Airport and it was, it was $20,000 actually. So we had 9,000 between the 3,000 each and we managed to get ourselves a loan at some crazy interest rate for the rest. And we bought a bus with crazy payments. We managed to make the payments. Next year, bought another couple of vans and then we just grew organically. There was a lot of Charter business back then, this was in the late, late, late 90s where the dot-coms were booming. So there was a lot of demand for pets.com, petsmart.com, petstore.com, all just trying to charter buses to go to Starbucks in the morning or wherever they were going. There was, there was money flying around everywhere. So we bought a fleet of coaches and just really added them one at a time. Wow, so it's interesting. Because I always think of you with the hop-on, hop-off buses, but you were, were doing the charter transport as well. Yeah, again, that's something we fell into. We didn't really make a decision to go into charters. It was a competitive industry. It got over-competitive. And then the dot-coms, of course, crashed. That business disappeared overnight. And then soon after that, 
9-11. So it was soon after 9-11 that we dropped out completely out of the charter business. And most of the companies that were around back then disappeared at that time as well. So that obviously was a massive loss of revenue for you. What were your next steps in the business? So by the time dot-com crash and then 9-11 came down, one of my partners had gone back to Ireland. Um, another one we'd, we'd split. I went through a few years of, then of, of building the business, uh, really learned about wholesale, about resellers, distribution. How did you learn that all of that? Well, online originally, our biggest customer for quite a while back then was Expedia. Yeah. Big company in Vegas called Look Tours, which ended up being part of Viator and our TripAdvisor. And also a few local companies were doing a lot online. So we'd, we started out with, with those companies and that was, you know, people talk about OTAs growing now, but back in the year 2002, 2003, we were probably 30% OTAs. How many hop-on, hop-off routes did you have back then? So back then wasn't hop-on, hop-off. Right. It was just the fixed, the three-hour three city tour, the four-hour Muir Woods tour. Yeah. We did a Yosemite day trip, Monterey day trip, a wine country day trip. So those were the five main tours that we ran. And um, it wasn't until 2005 that we started with the Hop on a Puff. And that came about through my, my first trade show that I went to. It was called California Travel Market in Sacramento. I didn't have a clue how these things worked. So I showed up there with a couple of brochures. And it was one of these typical trade shows, sort of speed yeah. dating setup. And the suppliers, the operators were sitting in rows. And all the meetings were preset. And I still remember it was um, a guy called Paul from Thomas Cook and he, he sat opposite me and he said, okay, what do you have? And I said, oh, it's great. We have a city tour, a Muir Woods tour, a wine country tour and all this stuff. And he said, sounds great. He said, but I've just talked to three other companies in the last half an hour who have the same exact products. He said, what, what makes you better? I said, oh yeah, that's, you know, we got much better customer service. We have much better buses and, um, and much better tour guides. And I'm just thinking as I'm saying all these things, not true, not true, not true. We have, we have the same pool of drivers that go around between the companies, tour guides, same. Our buses weren't as good as probably some of the competitors. I'm just making things up here to get through this conversation. And I came out of that trade show thinking I can't compete in this market with a commodity, which is what we had. So that's when I decided that we needed to differentiate the product and come up with something unique, which is when we came across the hop on up off format. Were you the first people to do that in, in San Francisco? Yep, nobody else was doing it at the time. They were operating in, um, in New York yeah. with double-decker buses, and there was a few trolley companies doing it. And obviously in Europe and other places, there were a few. But I came across City Sightseeing at uh, WTM, which is the trade show in London, each November, and met the people from City Sightseeing and talked to them about being a City Sightseeing licensee in San Francisco, and it took off from there. How does that work for people who aren't familiar to become a licensee? I mean, I'm sure it might have changed since you started the tours, but so you pay them a fee and then they help you with websites and bookings and marketing. Is that how it works or? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a few different formats depending yeah. on, you know, the company, there's Greyline and there's City Sightseeing and there's a few others. Um, City Sightseeing format back then was that we would pay a limited annual marketing fee. And then they would also resell the products. So they would keep a percentage of, of whatever they can resell. And that's how it all worked. We pretty much had control locally over whatever we did as far as distribution and branding, as long as we stuck to the brand guidelines. Yeah, because I always got confused. With, well, I'm not confused. But, you know, it's, it's not black and white with city sightseeing. It's because some cities, they run themselves, don't they? And then others, they have licensees. Correct, yeah. 
Yep, some are run by sort of uh, corporate, if you like, and there's different groups. Yeah. You know, there's, a, there's a group in Italy that runs all of Italy, right. and there's some billion-dollar companies that run some of the operations, and there's some, some cities have one bus, one driver. We joke, I think there was three cities that shared a bus. I think it was on the south coast of the U.K., and there was one bus, one driver, and on a Monday they'd go to this city, and the next day wow. they'd go to this town, and he'd take Sunday off and then go back to the start. Incredible, <laughs> incredible. At the peak then for you, how many buses did you have on the hop-on, hop-offs in, in San Francisco? Uh, about 30 buses. Yeah. When we had all the um, original English buses, I think we had uh, about 20-something double-decker buses and about eight to nine school buses on top. And when did you first get your competition on Hop On, Hop Off? Competition arrived about a year later. We got a local company started up. And then about six months after that, uh, Open Top Sightseeing, which became Big Bus, came in. And then a year after that, Greyline started up. Yeah. And then a year after that, the fourth. So we've had, we've had five companies now for most of the last wow. 12 years. Not so many today, but most of that period, we've had yeah. four or five companies. So as a businessman, as a tourpreneur, if you will, how did you respond to that? Because you had for a year, you had the whole market to yourself, and then you've got these other players coming in. For a while, it was, it was just up and up. We, you know, our first year, we had two buses. Yeah. And on a good day, with a new concept, we'd sell, we'd fill up those two buses. And then, say, five years ago, collectively, there were probably 60 or 70 buses in the whole of San Francisco. And on a good day we'd fill those 60 or 70 buses. Wow. So the benefits of a competitor is they increase the size of the market. I yeah. think that's well understood with a lot of types of tours, not just up on a path, but I think especially up on a path, the more you see the bus in the market, you more, and this was our original business model is to make the hop on a path the thing to do. So when you go to a place like London, New York, where the hop on a paths are everywhere, you soon realize as a tourist that this is kind of the way to get around. And I think that's happened in San Francisco now. It's understood that to see San Francisco, you go to Union Square or Fishman's Wharf, jump on a bus. It's a great way to see everything. Yeah, I saw several this morning when I was having my breakfast out the window and they were all full. Yeah. All the hop-on, hop-offs. And I, I'm a huge fan. Or oh, even before I got into the tour side of the business, I, whenever I'd go to a new city, I'd always jump on a hop-on, hop-off. In fact, there was one occasion when I was with some pals in Budapest and I'd been there lots of times with work. We all went out. Then I really wanted them to see the city. And I said, got to get the hop on, hop off. And then you can see what you like and we can go back. And uh, I always remember they said to me, yeah, well, do, do you know where there's, where there's a sports shop, Shane? I said, well, what do you want a sports shop for? Oh, we want to buy a football and go down the park. I was like, you want to boot a ball around? They were like, well, you go on your boring bus. And I was like, really? <laughs> so, so my friends always tease me whenever we go somewhere. I always want to do the hop on, hop off bus first. Yeah, which is what we hear all the time. I think it becomes the thing that people do first. Yeah. Which is great. We get the first shot at these people and show them what to do the rest of the city. But it yeah. is a good way to get an overview yeah. of a new place. Because there was a really snobby article on, in the Telegraph recently where they... In England, they were going, oh, yeah, we all moan about the, the hop-on, hop-offs. And I read it and said, well, you know, I, I think it's a great way to see a city. And then other people jumped in and said, oh, you should do a walk. It's better for the environment. I'm like, yeah, have you tried walking around Budapest? It's, it's two cities. I mean, yeah. I want to see everything in the shortest amount of time. And then I know where to go later on where I might want to go for a walk. So I think they, they both work together. Yeah, the article I think you're referring to was an embarrassment. It shouldn't have been printed. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's not the only way to see a city. If I'm on my own, I'll, I'll usually take a bike. 
Yeah. I love to ride my bike around the city or, or run around the city, but a city that's spread out, if you, if you want to see the place, like, like San Francisco is or a place like London and, and New York, I think taking a double-decker bus is a great way to, to see it. And absolutely, you should do other things as well. You, yeah, should, yeah. you should definitely take a bike across the Golden Gate Bridge. You should definitely do a walking tour of, of Chinatown or North Beach and other places. You know, I'm a big believer in a variety yeah. of ways of seeing a place. Absolutely. And it's interesting that when I got my transfer to San Francisco, booking said, go out there for a week, go see the office, go look around before you make your decision. The first thing I did was hop on one of your buses here and I did the whole ride. I want to see the place as much as I can. And I did the hop on, hop off. So very good. And then I moved here. Did you pay for your ticket? Of course I did. Excellent. Yeah, Thank I you. I did. I think I even paid direct on the street there. I don't think <laughs> I used a website to do that. I just jumped on. But that, that does lead me to my next question, though, because even though I'm a huge fan of hop-on, hop-offs, now, if Ollie Nichols is listening to this, he's going to kill me probably, but, you know, I didn't see the difference between city sightseeing or big bus or, I mean, they were the two main ones, but do you think the consumer is aware of differences between the two? I think we overplay that within the industry. Yeah. I think the, the people that care more about the brands are the people who work in the industry. Yeah. And we go to these, I go to all these trade shows, the, the IPWs, the arrivals and, and all these trade shows. And we talk to all the buyers from the OTAs and we use the brand and we think everyone cares about the brand. The honest truth is when it comes to the customer, they get to Union Square or Times Square or, or Big Ben, wherever they are, and often it's the first bus that comes along. And I have so many people come up to me and say that we rode city sightseeing in this city or that city or this, and I'm thinking, well, we don't operate in any of those cities. They think they They rode city sightseeing, but they took some other brand. Yeah. And I think it's the same as anything else. There was one hop-on, hop-off company that I won't name on air, but Lexi, who now works for Big Bus, we took one, and we had some big disasters where, you know, the driver stopped and went off for a cigarette and... (laughs) Then he just stopped again. And yeah, and so I remember that company because something bad happened. Yeah, you know, which that's, is, that's the it's difference, a shame, I think. but that's, that's the reality. Yeah. You know, the other example I talk about a lot is the shuttles from the airport. Yeah. And oh. it's a, that's a tough business because the, the best thing that can happen is that everything goes okay. Yeah. And you get there on time after yeah. minimal stops. And um, yeah, I think a, a good hop on up off experience, people love it. They get to see a whole place, but it's not about the brand. The product is about the city. Yeah. So if we're delivering a great experience, it's because we've shown you the best of the Golden Gate Bridge. And we told you the stories about the Golden Gate Park and Chinatown. And you've seen San Francisco, not the inside of our bus. Yeah. So I was going to ask you if you can talk us through a nightmare situation for you and how you dealt with it. There was a situation in Chinatown. Do you want to share that with our with our listeners? No, Chinatown, no. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Um, (laughs) yeah, yeah, this was, um, this was a few years ago now. It was, it was during the world series when, back when the, uh, San Francisco giants used to win every other year. And, um, I still remember the day it was one of my, uh, my reservations manager came up to me and she showed me a video. I was in the office on her phone and it was a a video of a tour guide on a double-decker bus uh, in Chinatown who had gone wild. She had, she what? She'd lost the plot. She was effing this, effing Chinatown, effing gate, effing dragons, all these racial slurs going through Chinatown, delivering a tour on the top of a double-decker bus. I didn't know whose bus it was. There was no branding on there. You couldn't tell 
You couldn't see her uniform, but it was a, a minute and a half or two minutes of this rant. And um, it was on YouTube. Some guest had posted it. And I think at the time it was, it was at around 200 views. So I looked at it. We, we talked around the office. We said, anyone know who this is? Pretty soon realized it was one of our ex-tour guides. I caught the train home that night. And I remember getting on the train and we were up at about a thousand views. I started getting emails from people that I knew asking what happened and have you seen this? And then I got off the train, which was half an hour later, and we were at about 20,000 views. Wow. The reason I mentioned the World Series, this was during the game and everyone else in the Bay Area was watching the, um, yeah. watching the Giants. Anyway, I got home, made a few phone calls, talked to City Sites in New York because they have PR people. First reaction is people saying, you need to get this taken down. I said, guys, this has got 20,000 views. It's not getting taken down. It's, it's out. It's, it's done. And next morning, we got up to about a million views. Gee whiz. And, you know, if you were to, if you were to create a viral video, this, this was, this was um, the, the press got a hold of this in a hurry. Yeah. So next morning, the press were all over the office. I got close to the office, chose not to go in. Uh, later on, got into the office. We talked to some PR people, made a really quick, short press release, and then just dealt with phone calls all day. Um, not really press phone calls. We weren't accepting the press phone calls, but just business, uh, other businesses, uh, City Hall especially, the, the supervisors and the mayor and everyone wanted to know what happened and what we we're going to do about it. And that was, a, that was a rough time. Did the city give you a fair hearing? The city... People that are elected, you know, I think they have priorities. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And sometimes they may, you know, they, they need to come down on us. It, it was a horrible thing. It, just to give you sort of the background, it was our tour guide's last day. This had happened two weeks earlier. And it was her last day. We thought she was a good tour guide at the time. She'd left to do something else over the winter. And she decided to be funny that she was going to do this on her last day. She thought it was funny. She thought it was a, like a comedy sketch. So it was an awful thing. And especially for the folks at Chinatown, for, yeah. you know, for folks of China and Chinese descent, it was racially horrific. Yeah. So we had to stand up and we had to say, you know, we, th this was a terrible thing and we were sorry. And the politicians obviously had to do the same thing. They had to make sure that we were held accountable. But I mean understand that but you have a rogue tour guide what what did they expect you to do and it wasn't like this had happened repeatedly this was a one-off right i mean yeah so i think people realize that and yeah. people in the industry that i spoke to you know in the weeks after that and the next time i saw them were yeah sorry this happened to you and it very much looked at as something that happened to us yeah could we have avoided it i, I don't think so no. we could have trained that tour guide all day long and then she thought she was going to be funny on her last day you know, we, we were never going to catch that. Did she ever say anything in public? No, they didn't say in public. I was told not to release her name. Yeah. I was told not to reach out to her. Right. So never heard from her again. Having gone through that, what advice would you have for another tour company out there that may get this kind of bad publicity and a video going viral? Someone that's out of their control, as this was. I mean, what would your advice be to that person today? I mean, definitely get advice from others. You know, most of us are just running a tour company. We understand buses or tour guides or, or food or something. We don't understand PR. We're not doing this day after day, so we don't know how it works. I had my staff all around me giving me different advice. 
most of them are saying you need to get out there, you need to make a statement, you need to get on TV and you need to get in front of this. And then others said, you know, make a quick brief statement yeah. and, and keep your head down and this will blow over. And it turned out the latter is what we did. And the latter, I think, was the right decision. I don't think it's always the right way to deal with it. But I think in that case, a couple of experts, my um, operations guy, uh, Chris Lovett, he was really strong and said, listen, you got a 24-hour news cycle. Just make a quick statement and in 24 hours, this will start to disappear. And yeah. it did. There was another case, which I, I don't want to go into in too much detail because I understand it's, it's still going through the courts or whatnot. But, you know, I saw a video where the TV were chasing you around a hotel and, you know, you reminded me of a politician or a footballer in some ways where you were very, you know, no comment. But I think the hotel manager had to kick the press out of the hotel to stop harassing you. I mean, what goes through your mind when that happens? Because it's not like you, you're not a politician. You haven't been schooled in PR and how to deal with the press. I mean, you're a businessman, right? What was going through your mind when you're being chased through a lobby by somebody with a microphone? Yeah, that was... Um... That was followed, it was a, almost exactly a year after the Chinatown incident, we had a really bad accident in San Francisco where a lot of people were injured, um, some quite badly injured. And there was a lot of press after that. That's the incident you're talking about. We, we were just at a meeting in a hotel, a transportation meeting with the city. Um, I don't know, I, I remember that day, I remember that moment so clearly. And they, yeah, they were, they were hounding us. Yeah. They just wanted to get a story. That lady who was hounding me, she, she called me every day trying to be my friend and trying to get me to speak and they just care about their story. They don't really care about getting the truth and getting what really, usually the truth is not as interesting as the story they can get from people making statements and them trying to entrap you and saying something you shouldn't. So yeah, I don't know, I don't know my teachings from that. It was definitely the worst thing I've ever been through in my life that few weeks. Yeah. I just think having people around you that yeah. you can ask having good friends and other people in businesses. I think that's the one thing when you go through a really bad incident like that, other businesses, for us, absolutely, they they helped us. Right. I had people who were, you know, almost getting into fisticuffs the day before, competing on the street, calling the next day saying, listen, how can we help? We're all in the same boat here. This could happen to anyone. Let's, um, let's help each other. And yeah. people really did. Well, it certainly looked tough on the video and you had my sympathy. Yeah, I appreciate it. Want to connect with other tourpreneurs? Then join our Facebook group at tourpreneur.com forward slash Facebook. All right, so let's move on. Jason from Urban Adventures up in Toronto has asked, I'd like to know if city sightseeing sees walking tours as a competing or potentially complementary experience. And how does Christian feel about collaboration within the tourism industry today as the field becomes more crowded? Yeah, so that's, for me personally, 100% collaboration. I'm always a huge believer in working with everyone in a market. From day one, that's been a huge part of our marketing plan is to work with all the partners. So we sell almost as many boat tours as we sell bus tours. We sell a wow. ton of bike tours, walking tours. We sell everything. And, you know, we're not going to sell a hop on up off tour to everyone. It's just not everyone's cup of tea and it, and it shouldn't be. So... We make a product the best we can. And if somebody walks in and wants to buy a walking tour, then I should, be sell I should sell them a walking tour. I should make the commission on that rather than trying to force them into buying something they don't. So I've always been a big believer in offering a, a variety of products. We operate concierge desks here in San Francisco and, and visitor centers, and we, we sell everyone. We yeah. sell everything and everyone. Do you have any advice for reaching out to potential partners? So for a tourpreneur who's listening today that wants to work with others, 
based on your years of experience, what advice would you share? Yeah, I think become part of the community. I'm sure most people already are, but there's there's a ton of networking events, whether it's the local community. We have a Fisherman's Wharf community luncheon, for example. I'm, I'm sure most cities have these run by the city or the yeah. CVB, the DMO, wh- whatever organization, or if it's just a meetup, or yeah. if it's just a, a weekly beer down the pub, just get involved with other people from the industry Make friends. People aren't there to really be aggressive. They're, they're there to help each other for the most part. And just just look and see what, what else they offer. I think most people that I know, they're happy to sell other people's products. If they've already got something that competes directly, they might not want to add another product the same. Then find out a way to differentiate it. Find out a way to package it. Yeah. Now, I'm curious to know how, because there's been some changes lately in, in San Francisco, how you've gone from, you know, your work with City Sightseeing to Magpie. Me personally, my yeah, time? Yeah. So, yeah, it's been an interesting couple of years. We started doing a rideshare a couple of years ago with Greyline San Francisco, which were yeah. one of our competitors. So we um, came to an arrangement where our tickets were valid for their buses, their tickets were valid for our buses, which just helps everyone save on operational cost. So we did that for about a year. And then a, almost a year ago, they quit the market overnight. And we did a similar arrangement now with our arch enemy for many years, Big Bus, which was, I mean, they really were our arch enemy. That was the company that we would just come across everywhere. It was city sightseeing against Big Bus everywhere we went. And then we um, did a deal with them. So we now do a rideshare program with Big Bus. Wow. Which is interesting. You know, the, the lesson from that arrangement is never burn your bridges. Yeah. I probably burned a, a lot of the way through a few of those bridges, but just held on enough to be able to make that deal. And some folks on the other side probably are saying the same thing. But um, things do come around always in this, in, I think in probably in any, any industry, but definitely from what I've seen in this industry, things come around. So never burn your bridges. You can fall out with people, but better to walk away and you know move on yeah. than to hold a grudge forever and keep bringing it up. So yeah, we do a relationship we have a relationship now with big bus which has just enabled me to focus far less on the operational side of the business and start up magpie which is something that i've been excited about starting up for a few years really but not had the time to focus and what can you share with us since we spoke when you launched you launched at arrival in berlin so that was march a few months ago what's happened since then so we did our first beta launch at arrival which was start of march a lot of testing a lot of dev work, a lot of testing. We have quite a few pilot accounts running on the software, giving us feedback, telling us what works, what doesn't work. We're just doing a lot of a lot of work to integrate with the extranets with the three or more larger OTAs. So we're still tweaking the product. We hope to have another big release in a week or two or three, and then really start pushing onboarding hundreds of suppliers. We've had quite a few people sign up, hundred and something people have signed up without us doing any marketing yeah. at all. So we've told them just to back off for a while and we'll get back to you very soon. And we hope to start onboarding those people very soon. And then it's just going to be grow, 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 grow. Well, nearly every tourpreneur that, that I speak to at Magpie, they all want to sign up. They all see a real need for it because the content is a headache for them. Yeah, that's great. And I, I'm really having to hold myself back because the, the reaction I get from both sides of the market, you know, the suppliers on one side and the, and the distributors on the other, all need it. They all yeah. want it. I've, I hear very little on the negativity about it. 
But I, I keep holding myself back thinking it's not proven until it's proven, until we've got people using it and using it every day and come back and saying, yes, we use it and it's great. But I'm, I'm 100% convinced that it's a necessary product in the market. And I'm encouraged that you're spending so long in testing and working through beta testing before. You know, you hear that was the, is it the LinkedIn guy who said you should ship your first product and be embarrassed about it. I'm not a big fan of that personally, especially when it comes to technology. So the fact that you guys are spending quite a bit of time in testing to make sure that it's right before you go out to the whole market, I think is commendable. Thank you. I'm, 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 it's not my usual <laughs> MO. I'm, I'm a big believer in, yeah, release early, release often. Okay. But, um, yeah. but this is slightly different. Yeah. If you know about Magpie, it's, it's content management and we really have to get the fields, the, the database, which is product fields, we need to get that right. Yeah. Because if we start onboarding thousands of tour operators and we have it wrong it's too late to change it. You can't just change a system overnight. So I'm trying to be patient yeah. and trying to get this right. I think we've got it right. I think we've got a great system now. And yeah, I'm pleased that from outside, it looks like we're just really methodical. Yeah. Whereas from inside, I'm just want to get this out there. No, I can imagine. What kind of dates do you think it will be available for the market? We definitely want to have a few dozen active users by arrival yeah. in Orlando in October. We've got internal deadlines before that to hit. We've got quite a few sort of larger test accounts that are itching to get going as well. So end of August, we'll have people actively using it. Brilliant. And then September, October, really trying to bring more people on and get much more feedback from more places. Excellent. Well, well let us know when it's live and we'll, we'll definitely uh, mention it on the brief and on the podcast. Did you know every weekday Shane curates the most interesting news articles in tours and activities and sends them out in a snappy daily digest? Grab your copy of the Tourpreneur Daily Briefing at www.tourpreneur.com. I wanted to, before we wrap up, really talk to you a little bit about productivity. What tools or apps would you say are indispensable to you in terms of running a, a tour business? Yeah, so I love technology. I've yeah. always I've always been very technology focused. I, I started out building my own websites. Um, I used to use Dreamweaver, and then I got into building my own databases. I built my own reservation system. I, I just get a kick out of all that stuff and making it work. Today, we use a reservation system called Ventrata, which has been great. It really runs all of our back end. It runs our website. It runs our concierge desks, our APIs, our, our integrations into the OTA websites. And that's kind of our, our main res system, as we call it, which has been great. We started using them three years ago, and they were a very new company. So we got to build quite a lot, almost a custom build around our needs. Now they have quite a lot of hop-on-up-off customers yeah. because of that, I think. That's our main platform. We use Slack for everything, communications. Um, I'm on, I spend half my day on Slack. Uh, we use HubSpot for keeping track of our customers, our wholesale customers. And then we use, I'm trying to think what else we use, WordPress for yep. our content management. WordPress is so easy and it's such a great tool for a blog, which yeah. everybody should have. I'm a big believer in content management. And then, yeah, I'm always on the lookout for the next thing. We, we use Trello for project management. My problem is that I always look at the next thing and the new thing and I keep wanting to jump on the next thing because it's yeah. it's better. They do keep getting better, yeah. but at some point you need to stabilize and decide that this is a place to stay for a few years. Sure. Earlier on in our chat, you were saying that you, you didn't really have a lot of mentors when you started on the buses, but you were reading books. Are there any books that you can think over the last few years that, that really inspired you? 
So I read a lot of books. My problem with, with business books is what, what I generally read is I get, especially the practical ones, I get so excited after the first chapter or two that I have to put them down and go and do it. Right. And then I come back to a month later and read another chapter and get excited and go and do it. But at least you take action. Because I know loads of people who read business books and they go, oh, it was a really good book. And then they move on to the next one without implementing what they read in the one prior. Yeah, and that's that's very common, I'm sure. Yeah. If you're going to read it, and it's, it's like any kind of learning. It's easy to go to a conference. Yeah. And you see all these people on stage who've got all these great ideas, but then people come back and they just jump into their business and they forget. I think you need to write down action items and actually do something about it. That's the key, I think. Yeah. The, the best book, I still think, maybe it's nostalgic, but the first book I ever read as far as business was called The E-Myth. It's probably very dated now, but it's just very much about building your business on process. And building it so that if everybody um, fell over one day and a bunch of new people walked in the office, they could just read the how-to manual and your business would still survive. That was great. I love Good to Great. I think that's a common one. And I'm just thinking, I I love Richard Branson's books. He's just got really good inspirational stories. And then the, the, the upstarts is one I read recently, which is the story of Airbnb and Uber, how they started at the same time and grew sort of, at yeah. the same time, that's just an interesting way. You know, it's, it's today's business as well. It's the Definitely. platform industry. So it's a really interesting read. Good. And you also enjoy reading the Daily Brief, right? The two up in a Daily Brief. It's got to be right Every day, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the podcasts. I was going to ask you next, other than the Mighty Two Up in a Podcast, what other podcasts do you listen to? I love Radiolab. I don't know if yeah. you listen to Radiolab. Yeah. That's my favorite. Um, and then Freakonomics. Yeah. And I can't think of others. A lot of the, a lot of the stuff on NPR, This American Life, and is, is great. But those are my those are my go tos. Not uh, business related, but did you listen to the, that Peter Crouch podcast? I didn't know. Oh, you need to get on that. I'm excited. I'll, That's I'll go and do fantastic. It we'll, we'll talk about it off air. But if you're if you're a football fan, it's the, it went to the top of the charts for the BBC. It's just an incredible. Pot, two seasons of it, incredible. We talked a little bit earlier on about networking events, so you, you referenced many that you've been to. What tips have you got for people, particularly for tourpreneurs who are just starting with their tour business? They may be going to a rival or IPW and they're a bit nervous about approaching people. What tips would you have in terms of leveraging attending those events? Yeah, I think all of these events, uh, you, you get out of it what you want, you know? It's, it's easy to go to the event and be afraid to talk to people and uh, sort of carry around the outside of the of the network and room. But I think, I think the key is that everyone in that room is there to meet other people. And it's, it's a networking event. You're there to talk to people and, and to learn. And I think most people, maybe it's not most, so many people have social phobias. And actually when you talk to them one-on-one, they're terrified about being out there if they don't know anyone at a networking event. So know that half the people or thereabouts are in the same position as you and they just love you to come up to them now and talk to them. Yeah, and sure. everybody's there. I've never been to a networking event where people have been cast to one side for walking up and introducing themselves. It's what you're there for. Yes, there's a way to do it and you need to look at who's having a private conversation and there's a way to walk up to a group. But I think just, just go and talk to people, put yourself out there. And then like you referred to earlier, I think know that you're trying to get something out of it. We, we sat, the lady that does my sales and marketing, she's called, she's called Jessica Rebstock. And she, I think you know her. She, yes. she, she's great. She knows everybody. She's very personable. She's always out there at every event. We set challenges up. I probably shouldn't say this on air, but we, <laughs> we, we come into an IPW trade show and we set a challenge and we have to meet five new people and spend at least half an hour with five new people that we don't right. know yet and have yeah. a proper conversation about a different subject 
just to try and broaden our horizons so that we don't get stuck with the same people talking about the same thing. That's very easy to do, isn't it? Yeah, and I think most people do it because it's, yeah, safety, it's comfortable. Yeah. So I think put yourself out there and and just be brave and talk to people and try and learn and ask questions. Are you speaking at this year's arrival in Orlando? Yeah, I'm doing my, um, I think I do every, all of them now. I do the How to Choose Your Technology workshop. Yeah. So, which has become all about the res system. And so there's so many res systems out there now. The last count we got, I think we counted 160. Wow. So I know a lot of these folks and I've done demos with most of them and I like technology. So I like to see what they're all doing. And it's just so difficult to choose which system to use. So you go through all 160 res systems on the stage, right? In 20 minutes. <laughs> that would it's, be some presentation. Yeah, we actually do the opposite. We do the um, presentation without mentioning one brand. Because if you mention one, yeah, you thought you got on that trap of, you know, this company has this feature, then you feel like you need to mention all of them. So there's no brand. It's just, it's how to choose rather right. than which one to choose. I understand. But it's, it's a difficult decision. Well, yeah, and that's why I always advocate to our listeners that they should attend Arrival because that's the kind of value you're getting. That's a really important workshop for a lot of people. Yeah, I think for everybody, there's workshops, there's presentations, there's demo labs, there's all this. It's just all about learning. And you you can get a year's worth of learning within two days and put yourself out there and talk to people, get a ton of contacts. You can get sales out of it. Most of the distributors are now showing up at Arrival so you can sit and have sales meetings so I think there's, there's no better place than a couple of days at arrival to really make the most of this whole industry. So my big question for you then, with, with the recent articles with Get Your Guide warning to entrepreneurs about choosing a res system that's owned by an OTA, what's your take on that? I don't understand the recent comments. First of all, we're not going to pick sides and then we're picking sides. Yeah. That, I didn't understand that at all. I think maybe we're over-dramatizing the partnership. It's a tricky one. You know, obviously the, there's two big res systems that have been bought up by the two big OTAs. There's a bunch of independents around. If I was choosing my technology, I would, I would ignore most of that stuff. These res systems have to work with all of the distributors. If they think they're going to become a favorite of one and only really work closely with one, they're not going to make it. So yeah. you, need to fi- you need to find a reservation system that will work with every distributor and i think any that tie themselves too closely with one are going to end up ruining their relationships with the others and none of us can rely on one or two distributors we have over 100 and you know for me the more the better yeah sure just changing up a little bit a question i'm always interested in asking busy tourpreneurs such as yourself is how do you achieve a work-life balance well, I'm not sure you should be asking my uh, my family that, I suppose. <laughs> I, I think I didn't used to at all when, when I started out. I'm a bit of a workaholic and I'd, I, w- I would work seven days for, for years. Yeah. And that probably was not fair on the family. But I think as you grow and you, you know, mature and you learn about business, you learn about hiring people, which is really the key to all of this, is hiring the right people. Mm-hmm. And th- those are the people who are going to run the company. And as soon as you understand that you you know you one of your first ties for most people should be a good operations manager and it, probably it's that operations manager that's going to enable you to do that before i had a good operations manager i was there every morning doing check-ins and driving half the tours myself and you, you don't have a choice yeah and i, th- I think it's easy to, to get caught up in that you know as a as a tour guide I, i've driven hundreds of tours and i've and i've been on the ground level for years you're just spinning the wheels, you know? You you could spend forever checking people in instead of 
taking a step back and thinking, okay, let me pay somebody to check these people in so I can work on the next step, so I can take a step. So for me, you, you're always working on replacing yourself. You're always, whatever you're doing today, try and find someone to replace yourself to, so you can move a, a step up. And I tell my staff that. I said, you should always be looking at having someone else do your job. If you can do that, you won't get fired. You won't be out of a job. You'll move up Yeah, every time. Good advice. And finally, whose story would you like to hear on Tourpreneur Next? Apart from Richard Branson's, because, you know, he's too nervous to come on Tourpreneur. Can I just reel off a load of uh, Newcastle players now? <laughs> it's going to sound biased, but I'd love to hear Rod Cuthbert. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, yeah he's not, got not, some story, right? He's, Rod's, uh, Rod's been around a while. Yeah, he's, he's, got a, he's got a couple of stories to tell, I think. We'll do it. We'll see if he's brave enough to come back on the show. Let's see. Christian, thank you very much. Thank you, Shane. And a big thank you to Christian Watts for joining us on the Tourpreneur podcast because he is a very busy tourpreneur. He's got a lot going on, especially with Magpie. So really appreciated him sitting down with me for an hour and for a cheeky beer or two afterwards. Christian, I, I really appreciate your company and even more so appreciate how candid you were on this interview with us where we're sharing your journey because we are talking about very often on social media, we just see the highs, we see the wins. But Anyone who's worked in travel knows that there are lows that go along with that as well. Um, so thank you for being open with us on the show. If you enjoyed Christian's interview today, if you're enjoying Tourpreneur, please help me out. And you can help me out by spreading the word about Tourpreneur. Share this interview with peers and colleagues and friends who you feel would enjoy listening to Christian's story. That, that would mean a great deal to me. And if you have the, uh, the time, leave us a rating and review on iTunes or whichever platform app you use will really help the show. So all the show notes um, for today you can find at tourpreneur.com forward slash 24. Thank you for tuning in and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Torpreneur podcast. Be sure to visit torpreneur.com to join the conversation and access the show notes, including links to the resources mentioned on today's episode. This is Torpreneur.